0: Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Welcome to heavy networking packets and routers and automation. Oh my, a career sort of show for you today. We're chatting with Kurt Norris, Kurt, I'm going to call you Chuck at some point. Anyway, Kurt Norris, he's a networker with Proficiency in Automation, but he did not start out that way just five short years ago. Kurt was working his first tech job, I think it was your first, Kurt, as an IT support specialist. Well, you're wondering, how did Kurt gain expertise and move into other roles so quickly? And that is what we are going to find out today. Kurt, welcome to Heavy Networking. In just a few sentences, please tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Hey, Ethan. Uh, for starters, Uncle Chuck doesn't like me to disclose that he's, you know, my, you know, uncle in quotes. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but yeah, I, I've been working in automation, doing a lot of automation in my last two positions. And it's what I've kind of gravitated towards and like really started to try to specialize and focus in.
0: Okay. So you're, you're a network automation engineer. That's your, that's your focus, that's your specialty, but you didn't start out that way. So what, since I was looking at your LinkedIn, your timeline is compressed to like basically five, six years. Can you walk us through the key milestones in your career that got you to this place where now you're a specialist in automation?
1: Yeah. So I, I I mean, I started off graduating from high school. Uh, I went to school for a little bit and like through school, I I got an opportunity to do an internship and it was like more of a help desk oriented role. Um, And I determined that I did not want to be in a like broad overall category. So just from there, I kept setting goals for myself and kept looking for opportunities. And then when one would come up, I would jump on that opportunity.
0: Now you said, School, as in you graduated from high school, and you know this, this would be the American educational system. You graduated from high school and then went on to college. So you did some amount of college work?
1: Yeah, I did some amount of college work. I think at this point, I have 54 credits. But then at the time, I just really wanted the money and needed to take a break. So I, I just stopped going to school, and I picked up some books, and I talked oh. to a couple friends that are in industry. And the rest is history.
0: So you're like an athlete that didn't want to complete four years. They got they went they skipped and went right to the NBA draft after a year or two. You kind of kind of yeah, did that,
1: but they still make more money than me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So fifty four credits. That means you took a, a pretty healthy number of classes, but not enough to get an undergrad degree. Did you Did you even end up with like a two year associate's degree or?
1: No, because I at the time I. I Couldn't decide what I wanted to do. So I kept switching back and forth between originally like computer science, and then I switched to information technology. And within that timeframe, I transferred schools. And so I just had a hodgepodge of credits.
0: I ask that because there's been discussion for as long as I've been in the industry. Should I go get a college or university degree, or should I focus on certifications if you know money's a consideration and you're trying to figure all that stuff out? I mean, so far, it doesn't sound like not having a university degree of any kind, like an associate's or a bachelor's. It hasn't held you back or, or has it?
1: A little bit of both, because I, when I look at jobs on or job posting on LinkedIn or Indeed, a lot of them say that you must have a degree. So I try to skirt around those ones, and I try to find the, the jobs that say, like, with equivalent experience or something of that nature. So I, I don't think it's held me back too much. But I, I, like you said, this question has been around forever. So I think it really depends on who you're talking to and like if they have a college degree versus if they just started out in industry.
0: Yeah, it's driven me nuts because I feel like in different places where I've needed to hire folks, HR people give me, these are the requirements for this position that you're trying to fill. And it's like, we're going to leave a bunch of really interesting and valuable people they just won't be eligible because they don't have a degree, even though they've got experience and it changes so fast, it can be hard to mm-hmm. expect that the, the university degree is the, you know, the baseline. Cause, cause why, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in your, your hands-on expertise and your experience in the field. It's kind of weird that way, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's especially frustrating when they're like, you need to know this technology stack with like this certain framework and, you know, like, the time you, you get in there, that's going to change within like six months to a year anyways. So I, you know, I think people should focus more on what people can learn, I guess. Um, and like how fast people can catch on.
0: All right. Well, speaking of learning, then you didn't do it all in, in school. You must've done it like on the job training. You must've done self-study, I'm assuming. So, so talk about that. How do you approach learning?
1: So I normally I'll come across a topic one way or the other, and I'll just kind of jump online, Google it and like come across an interesting article. And then I'll, I'll keep like digging further and further. And then I kind of get stuck in this mindset of like, I need to figure out how it's working. So then I'll, I'll look up in-depth tutorials. I'll try doing it myself and like, like try to create like a personal project out of it. So yeah, I just keep looking for resources to try to, to get myself more exposed to that subject.
0: So do you have a a home lab or something?
1: So most of the labs I've worked in as far as like with networking equipment is through work. So I've been able to experiment in that way. Um, I do have a GNS three server on my desktop. So I do mess around uh, on it quite a bit. And then I, you know, for like different programming, Experiments. I'll just spin up a, a VM or a, a container and go from there.
0: It's amazing the number of tools that are out there to to facilitate that. So I I've done a bunch of certs over the years. And back in the day, because Kurt, I'm I am i am old now. Um back <laughs> in the day, virtually there wasn't GNS3 and there wasn't Eve NG. And I was just listening to a different podcast where they're talking about container lab. Container labs yet another Uh, platform you can learn stuff on none of that existed and so it was like hardware scrounging stuff off ebay if you could renting racks for a while was a thing and now it's just so much easier and cheaper than it it ever has been to learn stuff so it sounds like you've taken advantage of it because you're talking about it like it's not a thing yeah i'll spin up some vms i'll spin up some gns3 and i'll just sit down and uh, learn the thing
1: yeah it it blows my mind thinking about how people used to have have to purchase the the hardware to be able to run a few simple tests. And so that, I definitely am thankful that we've moved away from that for the most part.
0: For the most part, yeah, because not. I mean, there's some things that are you kind of need the hardware for, like I, yeah. I'm, I'm working on reshooting my QoS course that I built last year. You kind of need a box with hardware for that because the way QoS works, you need a chip that has queues and uh, to, to properly test and see how that works and so on. But But for the most part the vast majority of things is like yeah you can do all virtualized in software and the things you can't do are fewer and fewer as time goes on and there's different workarounds for things like oh i need to do something funky at layer two lacp or whatever and use some virtualized platforms maybe you couldn't do it but more increasingly you can it's pretty awesome
1: you just keep waiting for the next patch to release that feature
0: yeah so you mentioned self-study. You mentioned some things that you can do at work. And you scared me for a second there because I say that in this context. So there's been a few networks I've come into where it's like I I kind of inherited it. And it's like, who was doing this science experiment? Why is this configuration here? This doesn't need to be here. You're not that guy, though, are you, Kurt? No,
1: no, I'm not. <laughs> so luckily, the networks I've joined have had like a strong leadership team already established so like I've been able to to jump on and poke around at what they've come up with and then like just explore
0: and they've been supportive of that I'm guessing too
1: yeah yeah so I have full access to like I guess the entire network and like spinning up additional VMs and like so yeah it's kind of an odd question because I've just been able to have it so uh, I've never had a situation where I've been
0: denied it so in some shops, just depending on how regimented the production network is, it can be as granular as you're confined to this set of commands by the AAA server, and that's all you can do. And some shops are like, we're auditing this to death, and uh, and it could be the nature of the data that's on them, or just someone's just really anal. Or I had a bad experience, let's say, and uh, they never want to have that bad experience again, so they just lock everything down. And so your ability to try things in the workplace, uh, whether it's on the production network or kind of off to the side, can be really limited. So I think you're a little bit lucky in that regard.
1: Yeah, I'll take it.
0: (laughs) So on the job training, self-study, that is your major approach to learning. But I'm going to guess some people have had a role here because you've come along quick as far as what you've all been picking up in the last five years. Did you have a a, a mentor or mentors or, or people that have kind of helped you along?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've had a handful of mentors over the years, not all of them in the technology field, but just people there encouraging me and like teaching me more about life. But the the people that have really helped me careerize have They taught me how much I don't know. So I've been able to like identify weak spots, you know, working with a mentor and focus on that weak spot for like a time and make sure that I I understand it by the time we're done talking about it.
0: Okay. So let's go into an example of that. What does that mean? Like, say you're studying, I, I don't know, OSPF and you're struggling with some particular technical aspect and you go to someone you think knows and go and say, please teach me something like that.
1: So, for example, you've had Steve Paluka uh, yeah. on your show. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I had asked one time, like, how does BGP, like, how do we utilize BGP um, on our network? So, he actually wrote a guide and, like, a kind of like a tutorial and went through it with us. So, he was able to show us, hey, here are the fundamentals. If you, don't have that. And then this is how we apply those to our network. So that's just like one example of how like, I've asked about something and like the, my mentors come back with like, oh, this is how we do it. This is how you do it.
0: One of the companies I work with, we did what we call the lunch and learn where different people with different IT specialties would over the lunch hour, the company would buy, you know, pizza or sub sandwiches or something. And we'd all sit there and whoever the person was would teach us, the thing, the thing that they were good at. I remember doing something on load balancers. That that shop happened to be big into F5. And so I talked about, this is a virtual IP. These are pool members. This is how we do health checks. These are how we do layer seven rewrites for this one particular application. Just kind of walking through it. And everybody walked out going, ah, that's cool. I didn't really know that. And so, right, everybody was made smarter about what was going on and, and learned some things. And that precipitated some one-on-one conversation afterwards where people were like, okay, so I want to drill into this thing. And then you have longer conversations and everybody, the whole team ends up more capable as a result of that, uh, that information sharing.
1: I agree. Uh, we also had lunch and learns, but I mainly just went for the lunch. <laughs> no, I, I do like lunch and learns. Food, you know, is, is great. But yeah, you, you definitely get to learn a lot, um, especially like outside of your comfort zone with the different teams.
0: You mentioned mentors that were not just technical, but also about life. Do you have any highlights from that?
1: I don't know if I have a specific, but I mean, there's definitely been people that I've, you know, been like, I don't know if this is the right path that I'm going down. And, uh, you know, they just talk me through it and, you know, just make me feel better about the direction that I started going.
0: I mentioned that because I think one of the skill sets that doesn't get talked about enough with those of us who are nerds are things like emotional intelligence, being able to read the room, knowing how to communicate effectively in an email, understanding how business works, and, you know, and these kind of things, which I don't know how much of that you've had to run into yet, Kurt. But uh, I was just – since you said you know, kind of like life-related mentor, if uh, any of that stuff popped into your mind.
1: Yeah, I mean – I'll I'll definitely consult with other people to say, I'll say like, am I allowed to say this? Or is this like something okay to go forward with? But I can't think of a specific on this one.
0: It's funny you put it that way. Am I allowed to say this? Because (laughs) we have a tendency, we nerds, to be really blunt and not always as um, political or diplomatic as perhaps we should be. And and for me, with new jobs, especially if I didn't actually understand the politics and how the org worked and the relationship between different managers and different groups that I was interacting with, I'd just be like, I'd send it to my boss first and go, uh, "Am I gonna step on any landmines here? Anything I'm, you know, not aware of that this would be bad if I click send right now?" And usually it was, I was fine. But you know, every once in a while, the safety net would kick in and be like, "You, oh, yeah, don't, no, don't say that. <laughs> oh, sorry, okay."
1: And my signature move is
0: to CC my manager
1: (laughs) anytime I'm unsure. Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: All right, Kurt. I want to dig into some of your, how you got some of the specific skills that you got. Let's start with, with, with tooling. You, I'm going to guess that, you know, early on here, you're dealing with more help desk stuff. And then you moved into networking. Did you start out using tools, but maybe you ended up making tools or, Uh, you know, kind of creating stuff that was of your own invention, your own design, your own configuration, as opposed to just, you know, pulling the levers on something that someone just handed you.
1: So it started off where I was kind of, uh, we outsourced a lot of uh, our technology and like apps and stuff so at the time I'd be the one who kind of would interface with management and then like talk with the third party consultant so I, would, I wouldn't really get to touch the tool um, I'd just be like hey how can we add this or how can we do that um, and then after a while I got to know them pretty well so I'd ask them, hey can I watch how you're doing this or can you like tell me or explain like what we need to do
0: now, would this be something like Ansible
1: so this in particular was a web app
0: Okay. And again, they handed you the web app and said, basically, use this. And then you'd be like, but I want to do other things with it and started asking the questions.
1: Exactly. Yes. And then like at my next job, we had a... I think he's a network engineer, but he was doing a lot of automation. So he created a bunch of custom dashboards for alerting and reporting on different metrics of the network. So that's when I started to really get to to dig in and like look at someone else's code and try to understand what it's doing and like try to make it play nicely with what I want to do.
0: So there's an attribute here, Kurt, that I'm hearing over and over again, which is you're not content to just use the thing. You have to know how it works. So when I was a kid, I had to take everything apart, and like a little kid. I remember at my grandmother's house, there was a pair of binoculars that I was fascinated by. And you could unscrew the top lens and I would do that. And then all the lenses that were inside all the glass and little bits would fall out. I could never get it back together again. You know, I I ruined a pair of binoculars because I was that kid, you know, had to had to take it all apart. But I I identify with what you're saying here. I got to understand how things work. And it's not I don't want to just have a tool handed to me. Press the buttons. Do the thing. I want to know. I want to make I want to make the buttons, man. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's definitely my same uh feeling about it as well.
0: But that is how uh, in my opinion, that is one of the ways you advance in your career and make it known to your peer group that you are uh, you know engaged and interested and and are capable of of more than just being handed the tool. You want to actually do something to make the tool better. That's that's signaling to your peer group that you're you're really into this job.
1: Yeah. And I like <laughs> I like being able to say, hey, like I, I love the tool. Here's something I think that the tool can benefit from. Like, here's kind of what I threw together. Is this something you think we can integrate, or is it worthwhile exploring?
0: Okay. You just led into the next question here because as soon as you put yourself out there that you're willing to create something, make the tool, whatever it is, do more, you are now putting yourself at, at at a sort of risk. Because if you make the thing, now you're responsible for the thing. But that did not put you off, it doesn't sound like.
1: No. Um, in fact, you also had Ivan on your show and his thing was, we would always say when someone said, hey, can the tool do this? We'd immediately yell feature requests. So that <laughs> as soon as you make something or you make a tool that other people are going to start using, it's you, you have to be prepared to, to take ownership of it.
0: All right. So, uh, the thing that has happened to me over the years is I'll make the thing, I'll do the thing. Now I'm responsible for the thing, but I don't get paid more. You know, I don't. I have more responsibility because I just you know put myself out there and took on that responsibility. But you can feel underappreciated. Do do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and I've seen that play out in across different people uh, in the industry that I know. And I, I, I feel like that has to do a lot with the company you work for. Cause I, I think companies should be able to recognize, you know, the work you're doing and the value you, you provide. If they don't, then maybe start exploring other options.
0: Is that what you, you're saying that you did as would you, what would happen? Would you kind of outgrow the role and start looking for other things?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my first big move from Zito to DQE. I I just had to move because of my, my at the time fiance was in school. So while I was at DQ, I I really loved the people I worked with and the company, but they currently don't support an automation uh, engineer role. So to complicate things more, my, my wife was graduating school. And so we had to look, I had to look for opportunities where she was going.
0: But you were willing to make the move and and find the opportunities that were out there. You didn't just sit around and you know wait for something better within your current role to to pop up. Now, you had life circumstances that were driving this, but I mean, you, you've taken charge and gone to find new roles.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have. And as I said earlier, it's really important that you identify and set goals for yourself. So that way you kind of, have like a end game in sight so you can make sure that you're trying to stay on track and get to that point you want to be at
0: okay so goals give me an example of what you mean by goals is that salary is that having a particular certification what do you mean
1: so the big thing that i've set for myself is hey i want to become an engineer and say like i think i set originally 4 years for myself so i started off you know at help desk i took a little break from it I came back, started off as like a, a knock tech. Um, and at that point, I was like, hey, I, I know I want to do this. So let's make sure that I uh, get to where I want to go. So I was like, what can I do next? So I found a position as a provisioning tech next. So, you know, one step up from knock tech. Mm-hmm. And then I was at my, you know, roles provisioning tech. And I was like, okay, so I'm one step further ahead. What can I do to advance into the engineer role? And then landed my current position
0: okay this is interesting so your goals were focused on the role you wanted to play and maybe money was was a benefit of that along the way maybe you got paid more as you went but it doesn't sound like that was the primary thing you were really focused on the the role and the responsibility you'd have
1: yeah i would say that's my my main driver
0: so you're at the engineer level now do you still have a trajectory like someday you want to be i don't know what's after engineer architect let's say
1: so I think I want to get more involved in the software side of networking. So in what that looks like exactly, I'm not 100% sure, but I you know, see see where life takes me.
0: As you look back on the different roles that you've had, even in just 5 years you've done a bunch of different things. Do, would you say you were given growth op- opportunities or did you did you make your own opportunities? Or I guess if we put it another way personal initiative did did, are you your own driver to make the career advancement happen
1: yeah so i mean a project would come up at work and i'd be like that's really cool what do i need to do to get involved in this project and from there like (laughs) it's just a bunch of meetings um (laughs) and uh work time and you know just progress from there
0: Okay, so part of this is an age thing. So I'm going to guess I've got about 20 years on you, something like that, maybe even more. When I was closer to your age, I was kind of the same. Ooh, this project's kind of cool. I want to do that. Jump in. The next thing you know, you're in the middle of a bunch of meetings, and there's you know a project calendar, and there's you know roles and responsibilities and whatever. You got your contributions you got to make to make the thing happen. At my age, it's like. Oh, there's another project coming up. Oh, yeah! I don't think I can handle that. I don't think I want to do it. But it's interesting that when you take the initiative to do something, get involved with the project, be a technical lead in a role, there's almost a sense of relief on the part of some other people that you're willing to take it on because it is hard. Because old people like me that don't want to, that don't necessarily <laughs> want to take on all the
1: projects anymore. We call that pushing, you know, just push that to the side.
0: (laughs) All right, here's another practical question. Um, I look back at younger me, and it got to a point where maybe I'd look at the process that was required of me within the organization to accomplish certain things. You got to do a change control for everything. You can't type on a Cisco box, conf T, and make a change without that having been blessed by change control process and so on. And sometimes it'd be like... Yeah, I ain't doing that. I'm just doing the thing that I need to fix, whatever it is that I need to 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 do. And my logic was, what are they going to do? You know, fire me. How, how bad can it be? I'm not going to bring the network down or anything. And and that was mostly true. I have a few, I have a few stories, I have, but mostly I was fine. I, I did it, and I just kind of did my thing. Now I look at that and go, I don't know if I should have done that. I'm not asking you to you know confess to any crimes here, but I mean, have you <laughs> do you always follow the rules within an organization hundred percent or at times you kind of look left, look right, and go, uh, I'm just gonna do it uh,
1: so i I try to adhere i try to adhere to standards that like set forth by my organization um and then I, I think a lot of the times it also is depend on how well you know your manager <laughs> because like if you if you're in a box and you you just need to make one small change you are know, like i'm not i don't feel like creating a ticket for this so you just make that change and then like as, as long as you're cool with your manager i, I don't see problem with that
0: uh, it, yeah you just hit on something important there so one of the jobs i had i had a manager who would say don't screw it up he actually phrased it subtly differently don't screw it up but that would be his, <laughs> his like his catchphrase. If one of us would go to and be like, ah, we need to do this and this. fixes it for this customer. If we wait for change control, it's like uh, two weeks at least, maybe a month. But we can just kind of do it now. And we think it's pretty low risk. He'd be like, don't screw it up. That was his, <laughs> his permission to do it. But with yeah. the caveat of I'm trusting you here to not blow it. So, yeah. Yeah, having a good relationship with the manager is a big deal. If – you do screw it up, then there is the risk. You've kind of burned some credit, right? And then the trust that you are given as an engineer in an organization can go away if you screw it up badly enough. If you don't screw it up and you're successful, then the trust goes up and uh, you're kind of building credit so that when when inevitably you do screw up at some point, you can you can kind of get away with it. Not that you would want to do it too bad, but... You know what I mean? So there's a, there's an element of trust that you build within an organization that leads to more responsibility that can lead to helping you with your goals.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. <laughs> Just use that credit wisely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. I don't know that I'm advising people that are listening to us chat to say, just go color outside the lines, go crazy cowboys. Because actually, I mean, especially you as an automation person, you actually don't want people coloring outside the lines if you're trying to build a successful automation environment. But
1: Yeah, you don't want to spin a tool up and not tell anyone.
0: We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey, learning Novell stuff. And over the years, trainings never stopped for me because sometimes going for cert, sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nugget specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. Uh, DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal, and they are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some, some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. All right, I want to talk about automation in a minute, but I want to talk to you first about certifications. Early in my career, certifications were a big deal. Uh, it helped me learn the tech I needed to learn and then kind of advance, especially when I was a consultant back in the day. What has what your experience been with certs? So,
1: I At the moment, I only have two entry-level certs. So it's the Junos uh, or GNCI Junos and then the GNCI DevOps. So I, mean, I I think they helped in getting me into my current role. But information-wise, a lot of the stuff for those certifications I've already come across online and, and just from doing my own thing. So I, I, it's just something to put on paper at that point.
0: Yeah, I have really mixed feelings about certs. One of the challenges is if you're a job seeker. If you have the cert, you know, the abbreviation, whatever it is, the letters on your resume, you'll make it through certain filters. And if they're not there, you get filtered out and you're not even considered, no matter how much, how experienced you are, how talented you are. So there's that. But on the other hand, like you're saying, depending on what your background knowledge is, the cert can be a big pain in the butt to get because the exams usually suck. and. Mm Did you learn things that are going to help you in the job? I mean, for sure something, but you know, enough that it was worth all the time to get through the books and the practice labs and pass the exam. You know, I I don't know, but yet you did too. Are you planning on doing more?
1: Yeah, I think I want to do more. I want to see if some of the like advanced, uh, certs, like offer like more information that I haven't come across yet. And then just kind of, uh I guess I don't really have anything else to do. So I'll just, you know, work for those.
0: Well, so so here's a question then. As an automation engineer, what search do you have your eyes on?
1: So I I definitely want to get the tier two in the Juno's world for DevOps. And I, I think they're about to release the, the third tier of their certification path um for automation. So I know for certain I want to get those. And then I think next I'll pursue routing and switching through Junos
0: as well. Oh, okay baby, I'm going to ask you a loaded question here. Um so, you do not have like, you know, an expert level knowledge of routing and switching, but you are deep into automation. So one of my things is you should really understand networking well because you need to understand what it is you're automating. So, how have you struck the balance there?
1: So, uh, the trick is with automation is that you become so intimate with the process that you can do it in your sleep. So, a lot of the times I'll be doing something manual, like I'll, I'll be checking an L2 circuit or something, and for like 10 different circuits. And I'll be like, this really sucks because I'm checking both ends and making sure there's flow and no errors propagating. So like, and then like automating that. So like making sure that, you know, the the script knows what to check and like, what are the certain conditions to look for? So like anything with automation is like, I I guess I try to learn and get enough background information so I, I can automate it.
0: Yeah, you can learn the process really well, but the example you gave was an interesting one. That was an example of I need something that helps me troubleshoot a problem, so it's information gathering, which is a different flavor of automation than trying to configure EVPN, which would be, you know, it's fairly complex and there's a lot of dependencies and stuff. But but pushing config into the network as opposed to merely gathering data from the network, do you do both of those things or do you spend more of your time with say data gathering and reporting that kind of stuff versus actually pushing changes into the network?
1: So the configuration part, like automating the config is, I mean, 90% of the config is going to be static, right? There's going to be a few different like placeholders, like different areas and other things that you're going to have to add. But most of the config is going to be like, you're going to have it tried and tested beforehand. So it's not like it comes to me and I have to verify that you know this OSPF configuration is correct.
0: Because you've got a golden config stanza that covers, you know, whatever it is, with the exception of right, the variables that are going to change from device to device.
1: Yeah. So like honestly pushing config and generating config to devices to me is easier to do than data gathering. Because like if you have a network with thousands of devices, you know, you have to think about how you're going to get data from all those devices, how you're gonna aggregate that data, how are you gonna process that amount of data? And then like, how do you interpret it? How do you represent it?
0: And you get into templating, you're gonna have to deal with uh, async if you're trying to gather data from a bunch of devices, that sort of thing. And so the challenge then in in your mind, it isn't, you know, pushing config is easy because you've already got the golden paragraphs, who cares, push them, done, they've already been blessed, we know they're gonna work. Instead, it's, it's the hard part of doing, doing data gathering, which is almost counterintuitive, but it's, but I guess I'm thinking about it from that standpoint of risk. That is when you push a change, there's risk there. If you're just polling, well, polling's not quite the right word to use in an automation context, but if you're, if you're gathering data from a device, you just, it's read only, man, you're not going to hurt anything, right? but gathering data in a timely fashion for example can can be a challenge um do do you have a specific approach for that parallelism or something you use
1: yeah so i mean uh, <laughs> i mean the less network calls you can make the better cuz that's what really uh, slows you down um but yeah I, I use like async i use generators or async io i guess um to make multiple calls and you know, wait for the response to come back and move on to the next one and all that fun stuff. I've dipped into threads, but I like async I/O so far a little bit more. It just, I guess, like easier for what I want to accomplish. And then you just have to structure your code so that like it's meant to work with lots of devices and not like line by line, like, hey, here's one device, then like move on to the next. You know, it's just making sure your pipeline accommodates that.
0: Are you talking about Python? It feels like that to me, but it certainly doesn't have to be.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Python. Uh, I use Python 3 extensively. Um, and then I I have a little bit of Go in my back pocket, but I, I don't reach for it as often, or at least I haven't so far.
0: And the kinds of devices you're typically interacting with, um, you, know, you have some, some Juniper certs, so some Juniper and other vendors too?
1: Yes. I mean, PyEasy makes it super easy to to get like data off of devices and to query RPCs over NetCom. I mean, it's a programming language. So like as long as they have any kind of like endpoint enabled on their device, it, it doesn't necessarily matter what device it is. I mean, but then you get into the issue of cross having multiple devices on a network and being able to, to transparently go through each one to do what you need to do. So, but that's another talk.
0: Yeah, it is. It, it is a whole other talk. Um, it, it's interesting. You brought up Python PyEZ. when you're dealing with Juniper devices, there's a, there's an API there. You can, uh, hit in a bun- bunch of different methods, but some boxes like if you're dealing with, uh, various flavors of cisco ios you may not have an api at all and you're having to the python script is on your behalf sshing into the device getting back uh, text parsing it for you and then breaking it into a json blob or something for you to parse from there
1: yeah uh. so i've used Perminko um, to like SSH into device and scrape data off of the console. But I always feel a little bit dirty doing it. So <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. Uh, but there's definitely use cases or cases that you have to do it. So,
0: mm, Yes, there are. And I, I think wish... There was some years ago where I had hoped that standardized modeling with Yang was going to lead us to maybe standardized APIs to do calls against these models. None of that's happened. And I even heard someone say the other day, I don't know if this Yang thing is really working out. And I'm like, boy, the IETF's put an awful lot of energy into Yang modeling if it's not going to work out. So maybe that's uh, something you have or haven't worked with, Kurt. But do you have any take on uh, models?
1: No, I, I definitely feel your frustration. Uh, there's been times where I want to, like, you know, pu- use the, the open model uh, for for Yang, but like you're like, oh wait, does this model support like interfaces and does this different device support it too? And it, it's been a <laughs> a pain point uh, for me. But if it if it became a thing, I'd be so happy.
0: Well, is the reason for that, you know, if if those things were to become a standard because you don't have to reconsider your automation tooling because you've got kind of this common interface and model that you can hit? Or is it because you're on a multi-vendor network and you just like to be able to do the same thing on the same box all the time?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's it just would make it so much easier to interop between different devices if you have a multi-vendor network being able to consistently pull the same, or like query the same like RPC across multiple de- devices would just like make the backend look cleaner.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I remember some years ago as Yang modeling started to become a thing and various of us were talking about that and getting excited about it and wondering where it was gonna go. We always would point back to what happened to SNMP. You got SNMP, you got MIB2 with all that common stuff that are supported across network devices. And then you got that private MIB where all the interesting stuff that's unique per device, you'd have to dig through and figure out in the MIB spec what the OID was that you wanted, what the object was that was actually stored in that OID, what math operation you had to run against it to get some kind of useful data out of the thing. And it was a disaster for every single weird device you brought into your network. You'd have to figure out something within the SNMP world to pull it. And I don't think Yang's made it worse, um, but I'm not sure how much better it's made it either.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're kind of in a similar situation because like with those SNMP MIBs, you still have to install those on the machine you're running (laughs) off of if you want (laughs) to call it by, you know, the MIB itself and not the OID. Um, Um, So yeah, I mean... I really hope it becomes standard, but I, I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know either, my friend. I do not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Kurt, w- one of the things as we were going back and forth prepping for this show, the topic came up, a, a passion for automation. And I think as we were just you know, diving into some of the nerdier bits that, that came through from you, but – but still, passion is an overused word. Was, what does that really mean for you? You know, uh, is it is kind of abused? So, what what nerd itch does automation scratch for you? We were talking about search, and you were like, "Yeah, I, I want to keep going down the automation road if I can."
1: Yeah. So I like like we talked about briefly before. It's it, to me, it's kind of like the the craft craftsmanship of it. So I like being able to take like a project or like an idea. And then translate that into something that like actually works and, you know, meets the standards that I set out to meet. And then I can look at it. And then in six months later, six months later, I'll look at it again and just be like, why the hell, why the heck did I do that? (laughs) And then rewrite it. But
0: well, you did that and you have very clear comments in all of your code that remind you exactly why you did that, right?
1: Uh, (laughs) Some, some of them. I'm getting better. I I, I, I've been uh, trying to add more comments to things that aren't as clear, but I try to make the you know write the code so it's easy to read in general, so you can follow along, or other people can follow along.
0: Your passion with automation, then we'll just keep using that word because why not? You're doing Python work. You haven't mentioned other tools. To me, Python's like. Uh, it's when you're building something bespoke and craft and, and, and specialized for a particular environment, because there's so many tools out there that can do, I mean, a lot of the aspects of automation we want and things that are available from vendors or open source projects like Ansible and salt stack and so on. Why are you using other tools? And if not, I guess, why not?
1: Yeah, uh so like I do use Ansible, but that's just on you know it's uh, just built on top of Python, right? So technically yeah. I'm still using Python. Cuz I I've even added custom modules and and different filters and stuff to Ansible. So uh, and then you know we use I don't know how much I can say, but uh yeah, I we use other tools other
0: than just <laughs> Ansible and Python. <laughs> I heard Kurt thinking out loud very quickly about what am I allowed to talk about? Yeah, that that's fair. I don't mean to uh, you know, get you to expose any secrets of uh of your employer or anything like that. Is crafting an open source project of your own interesting? Do you see a need out there where you'd want to build something for open source?
1: So, I've had this talk with myself many times and I would love to find something to contribute either that I feel com- comfortable contributing to or creating a tool or yeah creating a tool and open sourcing it. The problem is is I can't even decide what I want to eat for dinner, let alone <laughs> an open source project. <laughs> so, you know, maybe one of these days I'll just be walking and it's going to hit me, but so far I haven't had that aha moment.
0: I'm the same it's like if I had this really specific need that I thought wasn't being fulfilled then you know maybe I'd go after that as a as a passion project of my own but I haven't hit the thing where it's like I care so much about it and I know there's a big need out there cuz at this point in the network automation world there's a lot of pretty significant projects that people are contributing to uh, already. So, um, Netbox, for example, as a source of truth, has come up. The guys over at Network to Code forked that and made Not a Bot, which is a little bit more specialized in what they're doing. So it's less about DSIM and more about you know automation that's a big project that's got a lot of people energized and contributing to it is mm-hmm. all the different stuff that's built into python now uh, or you know libraries that are available to python i should say not built in but the things that you can load in you mentioned uh, uh, netmiko and there is i'm going to forget all the things i've interviewed a bunch of people <laughs> over the years and i'm spacing out on the names of various projects but you know so many of them that are out there that it's hard to look at what exists and go, oh, I'm gonna do my own thing, because why? And so maybe the right answer is to contribute. But then you look at how much work's been done, and it's like, I need a year just to figure out what's going on before I can figure out how to even contribute to this project. So it's it's tough.
1: Yeah, I, this isn't necessarily like an open source project per se, but one thing I would re- I'd really like to standar- standardize as far as like in the ISP world, Our maintenance notifications and how people receive those, because right now each vendor has like their own format. Generally, you get an email, and so like you have to scrape that email, and that just really stinks. Lumen is a really good example as far as they have like APIs and webhooks you can subscribe to now uh, to get that maintenance uh, information, but not everyone in the industry is doing it, so it makes really hard to automate and like process those at a scale
0: that would be if i'm a customer of company x some isp and you know like i get most of mine via email they're they're gonna say hey you have like uh um, so i'm a a customer of vulture and i have some uh, VSPs that I have stood up in their environment in various data centers. If if they're going to do maintenance, I get an email that says, yep, yeah, we're doing maintenance in this data center. You could be affected. It's happening from here to here and here to here. And then I'm looking at this email with all this data in it, not structured. It's just yep. a blob of text. And wouldn't it be nice if somehow I could do something with that, throw it up in a calendar to remind me, Hey, if the server flickers during this time, it's probably the maintenance and I don't need to react to that. But as you say, I'd have to write something custom for every provider I've got that sends me maintenance notifications. And there's there's a bunch of them, not just Vulture. Who's got time for that?
1: Yeah, well, another problem is that even from the same vendor, a lot of the times it's just people sending them. So there can be like one email that they put UTC or one email they put GMT. Yep. So it, it, how do you make your, like if you're using regular expressions to to parse this, like how do you make it <laughs> accept all conditions, you know? So if, if we could standardize that, that'd be awesome.
0: A standardized message format, like like a JSON object or something that everybody would populate it, it would have to be this way. You could query it with an API, and then you know, because it's been standardized, what every field is, exactly how to interpret and present the data to a Slack channel or, you know, an email notification or whatever it is for your for your internal. I like that idea. First you you got to get everybody to agree.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Juniper <laughs> Networks did it with NetConf. So maybe there's a small hope for
0: just me. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, it's like anything. If there's a big enough motivation for people to do it, everyone looks and goes, yes, then uh, then it could be figured out. And then all you got to do is work through the 4,000 corner cases that come up that, uh, that extend the uh, complication of the fields and the formats and you know and all the rest to, to handle everybody's corner case. That's always the frustration. Uh, I've sat in a few IETF meetings where they're talking about whatever standard is that's being worked upon. And someone stands up to the mic and it's basically, I have this little corner case and therefore we need to change everything to accommodate me. It's like, no, man, come on. That's not the way it's supposed <laughs> to work. we got to agree on the common stuff and move ahead from there. you got to adjust your corner case to the standard, not the other way around. Yeah. I'm ranting now. Sorry. No,
1: I can, I can rant behind you on that one.
0: <laughs> well, Kurt, this has been a fun conversation. I have enjoyed this a lot. Are you active on the internet? Like when Twitter, or you've got a blog or uh, you've published 12 books or something. I don't know. Anything like <laughs> that you, that you'd like to share with people?
1: No, no. I mean, LinkedIn's probably the best place at the moment. I would like to start a a blog or or something of that nature in the future. I just haven't got around to to doing it yet.
0: Well, I'll tell you, and I'll remind anybody that's listening that if you just want to get a blog or two out the door, but don't want to go to the trouble to stand up your own blog, you can blog at PacketPushers.net. We set people up as authors all the time so they can share. And if you do have a blog, uh, I follow. I don't know, a hundred and some odd tech blogs right now because I share different articles in our newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Feel free to hit me on Twitter and let me know what your blog is so that I can add it to my feeds and monitor all the cool stuff that you're writing about out there. So Kurt Norris, thank you for being a guest on Heavy Networking today. I cannot believe how much you've done in just five plus years of being in the industry, but I appreciate hi- you highlighting the point that if you just dig your nose in deep and just go deep on a topic, read, figure it out for yourself, own it, and then do your own projects, that's that's the way to do it. That's the way to get it done. So thanks again for being on the show, man. Yeah, thanks, Ethan. really appreciate it. It's been fun. And if you've been listening out there, you can find this, Heavy Networking, and many more of our fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog that I was just mentioning. That is all at PacketPushers.net. We have a Slack channel uh, at Packet Pushers as well. If you go to packetpushers.net slash Slack, the link to join up is there, as well as the rules for participating, which are very simple. And it doesn't, you can be a vendor, you can be anybody and join our Slack group. There's over 1,700 engineers in there chatting about nerd stuff. So uh, come on in, it's free. Be a good Slack citizen. and We would love to have you on board. If you want to follow us on the socials, Packet Pushers is on Twitter at, at Packet Pushers. We are also on LinkedIn. And uh, last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.